Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There is nothing new under the sun. So said the writer of Ecclesiastes in the first chapter. And it occurs to me that that's always true. And right now we live in a boring age of reboots and remakes, prequels, sequels, adaptations. I mean, think about your favorite shows or your favorite summer movies. How many of them tell a new story? Something you've never thought about before, characters that you have never met. I mean, I looked up the domestic box office just for this year. Uh, Let me tell you the top five movies. You can probably guess them. Uh, Number one, Super Mario Brothers. Uh, Part nostalgia, part video game adaptation. Definitely not a new story. Second, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Sequel and adaptation. Next, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, admittedly fantastic, but (laughs) sequel, adaptation, reboot all together. Avatar, The Way of Water, which is really a sequel that took so long it feels like a reboot, to be honest. Um, And rounding out the top five, The Little Mermaid, reboot, adaptation. Um, If we keep going just a little bit, the top ten, here's what we get. Um, Another Ant-Man, we all needed that. Um, John Wick 4, Creed 3, Fast 10, (laughs) and another Puss in Boots movie that we were all waiting on pins and needles for. Um, Prequels, sequels, adaptations, origin stories, reboots, remakes, there is nothing new uh, under the sun. Why am I bringing that up? Well, this morning, um, we're going to look at this intricate passage in Romans 5, uh, verses 15 through 19. And what's fascinating to me is that when we come to the book of Romans, um, it feels like the Apostle Paul is working through themes like prequel and sequel, adaptation, origin story, reboots, remakes, as he's trying to make sense of what he knows of God through the Old Testament And what has been revealed now in and through Jesus and what Jesus has done for us and for our salvation. Um, Specifically, Paul is dealing with a phenomenon called a typology. Uh, We actually got to look at this earlier in the spring. We had this uh, whole passage, Romans 5, um, and we're able to look at it during the season of Lent. Basically, typology is just seeing the connections and links between what we find in the Old Testament And how it points to and gets us ready for what we find in the New Testament. Um, How that one big story uh, is taking place. And what you'll see is often the Apostle Paul, he will retell and reboot um, a specific Old Testament story through this new lens and new reality of the gospel. Like if you read through the book of Romans, this huge, I think of Romans like a porterhouse steak. I mean, it's huge and it's overflowing and it's wonderful. Uh, Paul is going to reboot the idea of creation, of Adam, of the fall, of the exile, of Abraham, of calling, of slavery, of exodus, of inheritance, of king, of kingdom. Anything you can think of almost finds its fulfillment 
here in Romans. And and Paul does this, uh, I think, almost effortlessly. He does it intuitively because the scriptures have so uh, seeped down into him that it, it, it comprises how he sees the world. And the only way he knows to make sense of the good news of what God has done in Christ is through what he knows of what God has already revealed himself, uh, who he has revealed himself to be, and what he has done in the past. And so here we are in Romans 5, and the context for this is really the entire Old Testament. That's how Paul is working at it. Um, Here Paul is going to write of Jesus, our new and better Adam, as he thinks about the gospel. Um, And when you hear the term gospel, I hope you think of something uh, big and glorious and multifaceted. Um, this diamond we can look at from all these different angles. Um, the gospel doesn't simply solve the problems of sin and death created by Adam. That's Paul's central teaching here. It doesn't just solve the problems of sin and death created by Adam. It does far more. The good news of the gospel is far more than just sin management or, or punching our ticket to heaven. And so I want to take a close look here at Romans 5, what Paul is saying, uh, just to clarify, um, just to recalibrate our understanding of the gospel, uh, hopefully in a way that would lead us to a greater appreciation of what God has done for us, that will lead us to a greater worship of who our Lord is. Uh, Because what we find here in Romans 5 is that Christ, our new and better Adam, as we look at this, we see that the good news of the gospel is better than you think. And the bad news of the fall is worse than you think. And finally, we need the great news of the gospel of grace. And we don't just need it on the first step of our journey. We need it through the entire walk we have with the Lord. So first, uh, the good news of the gospel is better than you think. Fundamentally, this passage is about how Jesus, our new and better Adam, doesn't just fix what Adam broke in Genesis but how much more he goes far beyond that, giving a glorious gift of grace. Um, If you listen to the reading over and over again, you heard the phrase, much more, or how much more. And and that logic, it, it, it undergirds this entire passage. If this was this, well, how much more? How much even more can we imagine what Jesus has done? It's fascinating. Paul isn't just looking at Jesus, the problem solver, that has taken sin and fixed it. Um, and I think we, we naturally do that because it's a very real problem that we face. Um, and, and Paul is saying, yes, of course, this saves us from sin, saves us from death, saves us from uh, being apart from God forever. Those are all true, of course. But here, Paul is not just looking at recovering what was lost. I think to know that, we need to think about what was the original purpose of creation? I mean, because we know that as we read the creation account, um, Adam's sin forfeited a lot. It caused a lot of damage. Um, That's one side of the coin. What was the other side of the coin? Why were humans created? What was Adam supposed to do? And how does what God has done through Jesus Um, Get us ready for those things, not just solve the problems that were created. Um, Well, here's what I see, that at minimum, Adam, uh, humankind, is created for relationship. We're created for relationship with God. We're created for relationship 
uh, with one another. Uh, Secondly, we're created with a vocation. Um, Adam's not just supposed to sit there. He's called to work and to till and to cultivate and to beautify. Uh, There is work and vocation uh, intended all the way back in the book of Genesis. And third, we are to uniquely, gloriously steward and bear the very image of God. Those are the three things I see at least are happening there. Relationship, uh, vocation, and glory. And as I read through Romans 5, what I see is that Jesus didn't just save us from sin and death or even hell, but that we are saved for relationship, vocation, and glory. It's not just problem solving. It's not just recovering what was lost. It's restoring uh, who we were always supposed to be and what we were always supposed to do but what we could never do on our own. For me, this is helpful because I grew up with a view, um, and this is simplifying, but it was almost God as a cosmic vending machine. If you just had the right prayer or knew the right formula, then you could make sure uh, you got heaven dispensed. (laughs) You got eternal life dispensed seemingly from the sky. Um, But there's so much more. If you think about our calling into relationship, into vocation, and into glory. And again, all of this comes through a gracious gift, through Jesus. Um, And when I think of the gracious gift of Jesus, I think of both what Jesus has done that gives us things, but ultimately how Jesus himself is that ultimate gift of grace. It was him, he that was given, and then everything we see that he has done, um, That's the good news of the gospel that's better than you think. It doesn't just solve those problems. It restores and makes possible again relationship, vocation, and glory. Um, But there was a problem. (laughs) The the bad news of the fall is worse than we think. Uh, And part of understanding that is to realize, okay, this wasn't just an arbitrary eating an apple. Um, There's a way in which that seems so reductionistic or arbitrary, doesn't it? What, he ate an apple? Who cares? Um, And and I I don't mean to make light of that, but just to say, like, what's really happening? Um, No, it's that humankind chose their own way. They chose to disregard that relationship. They chose to uh, spurn that vocation. They didn't steward what it meant to bear the image of God. Um, And that, to me, makes that early fall Uh, more significant and more tragic and more devastating than if they just kind of failed a false test of faithfulness. Now, sin entered the world through Adam's fall and spread. We see that throughout Romans 5. Um, And when I think about that, when you think about that, what comes to mind? Do, Do you think, man, I really wish Adam hadn't done that? Do you think, man, if that guy hadn't messed up, we'd all be fine? Or do you go, yeah, I can kind of see a mirror there. Because I too sin. And I too fall short of the glory of God. There are uh, books and volumes written wrestling with how we relate to that sin and how we relate um, to Adam Um, And and that's fun to think through. I I would say that on the one hand, um, we all sinned in Adam. And on the other hand, we all sin like Adam. It's a both and. Um, 
Michael Gorman, uh, who's a, a New Testament scholar, says if you look at some of the literature written between the Old and New Testament, uh, there's a book called Second Baruch. It's not in the scripture, but it gives us a sense of how did, um, how did the Hebrew people think about their story? How did they think about God and make sense of these things? Here's what it says in Second Baruch. Um, Adam is therefore not the cause, except only for himself. But each of us has become our own Adam. His idea, this is Michael Gorman, says that both in ancient Judaism in general and with Paul in particular, they perceived Adam's act, what he did, had these huge corporate consequences. It mattered for everyone while also believing that individuals are accountable for their own individual acts. We sinned in Adam and we sin like Adam. And the other thing that tells us how serious this is, um, is that, uh, you know, in the Bible, when God made humanity, he said it's not good for man to be alone. Well, sadly, it seems like we never see sin alone either. You always see sin and death. Both the way that sin leads to death and both the way it causes these deathly uh, consequences. Um, Fleming Rutledge, uh, who's an Episcopal priest, she's a great uh, preacher, uh, says, um, if, you, if you don't understand what it means to be part of the race of Adam, you don't understand your situation. This roller coaster ride ends in death. And it's only in light of the enormity of that threat that hung over us that we can understand the how much more of what God has done in Christ to save us. So you get the good news being better than we think, the bad news probably worse than we think. But even just getting a glimpse of how bad it was, we realize what we've been saved from and what we've been saved for. Bishop N.T. Wright says, sin is not just doing things God has forbidden. It's the failure to be fully functioning, God-reflecting human beings. Um, I used this illustration of sin last week. I want to use it again and build on it a little bit. Um, that Just suppose I was actually handy. I'm not at all. But suppose I was handy and I had a wood shop and I would make things in my shop and maybe I could even make instruments. Guitars and mandolins, ukuleles, incredible instruments to make music. Um, and what if you came into my shop and you picked up something I had carefully crafted? Maybe it is like a little mandolin. And you're like, oh, this is perfect i got to go play pickleball. <laughs> i got to go play tennis, rack, whatever it is. I've got to go play, I don't know. But you're like, hey, this thing is big and long, and I can use it to hit things. And you took that instrument, and you took it out on the athletic uh, area, and you started playing. Um, what would happen? Well, it's, a, it's immediately destroyed. You, you've not honored the intent. You've not honored the craftsmanship. Uh, You're trying to take something made for something else and use it in a way that you want. And the results are going to be disastrous. Well, that's what Paul's kind of saying here. Is that through Adam's sin, his trespass, sin and death entered the world. And we started getting tricked into thinking, oh, this guitar, this mandolin would make a great pickleball paddle. Or tennis racket or softball. You choose your sport of choice. But now through Jesus, it's not just that the fall is reversed, but something greater and better has happened. 
As if Christ, the new and better Adam, hasn't just come to us and said, hey, put that down. That guitar is not a tennis racket. That's one, no. Jesus has come to us and said, hey, give me that. Let me show you how it works. Let me show you what it was supposed to do. Let me teach you how to play this and invite you to play along. That's what's happening here. It's not just solving a problem. We're not just saved from, we're saved for. We're saved for relationship and vocation and glory. Every negative effect of Adam is nullified by Jesus, but then it was surpassed. The how much more, the abounding, abundant grace that God has brought into our lives. God's grace has flourished in what was a hopeless and tragic situation, and it comes to us as a free gift. That's emphasized over and over and over again. And what I know by that is that we need this great news. We need it from our first step to the last step, the gospel of grace. Um, When you think of grace, I don't know what comes to mind. Um, I was taught a very simple definition uh, in Sunday school growing up that grace is getting something you don't deserve. You heard that? Um, you receive a gift you didn't deserve. That, that's, that's pretty good. Um, and it, it's, it's a good way to think about it and memorize it at first. It's also kind of a first step. And it creates a little bit of a transactional uh, dynamic. Great, give me that. I want it. Um, there's a writer, her name is Anne Lamott. Here's how she defines Grace. So grace means you're in a different universe from where you have been stuck when you had absolutely no way to get there on your own. You're stuck and you need rescuing and you can't do anything about it. Um, when I think of grace, it can be a little abstract. And so one way to think of it is simply God's love towards us. And maybe that as we think about grace, you think about Jesus, who is the ultimate icon of grace, um, the ultimate gift who is given out of God's love uh, for us. Um, Tim Keller, who is uh, recently, his faith has become sight, uh, once said, here's the gospel. You've heard this. I love this. You're more sinful than you ever dared hope. You're more loved than you ever dared believe. Think about it. You're more, let me say that correctly. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe. You're more loved than you ever dared hope. Now, here's my question for us as Christians, us in the church, us at St. Thomas. Um, are we spending more time and effort trying to convince people that they are more sinful than they'd ever believed? Or are we spending our energy trying to tell and show them that they're more loved than they could ever hope? What about in your life? Do you spend more time thinking through the sin uh, that is there and thinking through, man, I am more sinful than I ever believed? Or just being astonished at the great love God has for you? I think there's a proper emphasis and attention there. Uh, Most people, they know something's wrong. We might disagree on what some of that is, but at root, there's an understanding that things are off. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Bishop N.T. Wright says, Our culture oscillates between despair and self-salvation. And into this world, the news of grace, of the undeserved gift of abundant life, bursts again and again. 
and the message of Jesus, offering this radical alternative, an entirely different way of construing reality, a new way of conceiving a whole experience of the world and our experience of God. We don't have to despair, and we don't have to save ourselves. Lord knows we can't. That's been borne out time and time again, and a way has been made through Jesus. And so our job is not to shame or to scare people. It's to announce grace, to announce Jesus, to invite people into the kingdom of God and into a relationship with King Jesus who is utterly trustworthy, loving, and true. There's been so many arguments in church history about grace and salvation, um, and they're important. Um, we stand on the other side of the English Reformation, um, and we see that a lot of good things that needed to be recovered were recovered during the Reformation. But I think sometimes in, in that argument back and forth, we can treat these as tug-of-war topics. We can abstract them and externalize the issues. Um, I was reading a scholar named John Barclay this week. He's a well-known New Testament scholar. And he's trying to kind of cut through that to go, can we focus on grace as a person? Here's what he writes. What grace conveys is not a thing, but a person. It establishes a relationship where the gift cannot be separated from the person who gave it. I mean, you know, that's how gift giving works, right? When you receive a gift, you're mindful of who gave it and why they gave it and what they would have thought of when they picked out that gift for you. Because it can't be separated. He writes, grace is not merely an object passed from Christ to believers or a quality infused into them. It is first and foremost a transformative relationship with the giver. That's what we're talking about here. That's what Paul is uh, trying to show us here. Similarly, St. John Chrysostom, so this would have been third century, says, Paul speaks of an abundant grace to show we have that what we have received is not just a medicine to, sufficient to heal the wound of sin. It doesn't just solve the problem. But also health and beauty and honor and glory and dignity far transcending our natural state. He says each of these in itself would have been enough to do away with death, but when they're all put together, when they're all put together, there is not a trace of death left, nor any shadow of it can be seen. So entirely has it been done away with. The gospel is not just a call to turn from sin and death, but a call to turn towards righteousness and life. A call to receive not just an abstract thing, but to receive a person, the Lord Jesus, and all that he has done for us through his death and resurrection, this utterly free gift. Bishop N.T. Wright says, the gospel is the royal announcement, I love this, that the crucified and risen Jesus, who died for our sins and rose again according to the scriptures, has been enthroned as the true Lord of the world. He's focused on a person. When the gospel is preached, God calls people to salvation out of sheer grace, leading them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as the risen Lord. I would just say this morning, and this is, a, this is an intricate passage. Romans 5 is tricky. That's why I've kind of slowed down to hopefully look at it uh, Together, but also just look at it from a few angles. Um, we, we need the repetition here. But friends, don't settle for a truncated, small view of the gospel. Uh, simply focused on solving problems, or even simply focused on you. That's certainly part of it. But the gospel is deep and rich and beautiful. 
It has these huge implications for all of history, for all the cosmos, for all the world, and it's intensely personal uh, for you and for me. We don't have to pick between those. We can grab both of those together. Because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, his mighty resurrection, all things are being made new. And we are being brought back into relationship with our triune God. And again, for me, this should result in praise and adoration. Here's the other thing. We actually believe here at St. Thomas that uh, through something as simple and ordinary as the sacraments of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, um, God has at work through these to bring this to bear in our lives. And to bring it to bear not just in our lives, but so that it overflows into our homes, our neighborhoods, into our world. Um, Through the sacraments of the church and the work of the Holy Spirit, we are being shaped into the image of Jesus. Not always in a linear fashion. It's sometimes three steps forward, two steps back. But by the Holy Spirit and what God has made available, we're being made like Jesus. We'll get to that in Romans 8 when he finishes this big section God is doing away with sin and death. He's birthing righteousness and life. And he's doing that within a community, within a family on mission. And that's why I think God has put us here for a reason. We are here in the midst of a a skeptical culture that is trapped between despair and self-salvation. They need to see this glorious gospel of grace, to see it faithfully embodied in a people clearly proclaimed and joyfully demonstrated. So let's be a big gospel people who delight in the gospel of grace and brings news that is truly good. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.